Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. The Home Secretary has reached an agreement on exporting refugees to Rwanda. The idea is that the threat of removal to Africa will prove extreme enough to deter people from coming to the UK by small boat and other unauthorised means. So is the plan legal and will it work? Joining me to discuss this are John Featonby, Policy and Advocacy Manager at the British Red Cross, and Sonia Ladigan, Legal and Policy Director at Rainbow Migration. Welcome, John, and welcome back, Sonia. Thanks, CJ. Thanks, CJ. Let's just recap briefly on what the Rwanda deal is. So the two governments have agreed that asylum seekers who enter the UK without permission can be flown to Rwanda on the basis that it's a quote-unquote safe third country uh, and they can claim asylum there. The BBC quite rightly reported this as a one-way ticket because these aren't UK asylum cases being processed offshore they become Rwandan asylum cases, and then even people granted asylum would have no right of return to Britain. Home Office Permanent Secretary Matthew Rycroft confirmed this. He wrote, under this approach, the UK's legal obligations end once an individual is relocated to Rwanda, and the government of Rwanda takes on the legal responsibility for processing their claim. Sonia, any other key features of these arrangements we should note at this juncture? Uh, Well, we're still missing a lot of detail about how this is all going to work. But one other point that is important that is in the Memorandum of Understanding is that a monitoring committee is going to be set up. So uh, we'll see what use that is, but that's something else that's in the MOU. I think the other thing just to just to flag about the nature of the deal as well is that it applies to anybody who arrived in the UK from the 1st of January this year. So although the Home Office has solved this as being something that's going to deter people from making dangerous journeys, it's going to also apply to people who have already made those journeys too. So what it, what it is doing is it's deterring people who are currently in the UK and need to enter the asylum system um, from actually making that claim for asylum. We've been fielding a lot of uh, calls and emails from extremely worried people since this announcement was made. And I know that other NGOs have been experiencing the same. The Home Office says that everything we are doing is compliant with our legal and international obligations, which reminds me a bit of that joke, you know, uh, my this is totally legal t-shirt is generating a lot of questions answered by the t-shirt. It's sort of a bit of a hint we should be asking about whether this is in fact legal. So what is the legal basis? What law authorizes removal of asylum seekers to Rwanda. I initially thought that uh, it would need to be powers under the Nationality and Borders Bill that we think is about to pass through Parliament today, uh, the 27th we're recording this. Um, But John, you spotted that the Home Office probably already has the legal authority to do this, uh, at least in terms of UK domestic law. Yeah, so it was back on the day when this was all all announced. I think we'd obviously seen the briefings the day before. And for those of us who have been following and working around the Nationality and Borders Bill the last nine months or so, it's been a hell of a long time now. I think in a lot of our minds, we were thinking about those powers in the bill. And then I sort of realised, actually, maybe it's not, maybe it's to do with the existing inadmissibility rules. And then some of the briefings from the Home Office and some of the, the media work that had been going on had been suggesting the Home Office already had the powers that they needed in order to, to be able to do this. And then some of the quote-unquote fact sheets that were released by the Home Office around the deal as well also mentioned inadmissibility. And then the letter that you mentioned, CJ, from Matthew Rycroft also talked about 
in admissibility. So that then also then explained that big unknown that I hadn't been able to answer at that point about how the UK can transfer somebody to another country and then no longer be responsible for that um, asylum claim as well. So the Nationality and Borders Bill does create what we've been referring to as these offshore powers, but those aren't, we don't think, the relevant powers for the Rwanda deal. Instead, it's these inadmissibility rules that exist within the immigration rules. They're actually published back in December 2020 and came into force then at the moment that the UK left the EU. What was very concerning about those rules when they were made and that a lot of organisations were flagging is that it allowed somebody whose claim had been found to be inadmissible to be removed to a country that they had no connection with. And so that paragraph 345C, very concerning there, now seems to be the key bit that allows the Home Office to do what they're proposing in this Rwanda deal. Yeah, we always like citations of the immigration rules on this podcast, proper order. And and so that that's the power they're using. But what are the criteria? Just briefly explain, if you can, the criteria for when someone could be deemed inadmissible. Broadly, you pass through a safe country en route to the UK and you could have applied for asylum there. Yeah, so there, I mean, there are a few different circumstances, and some of them almost make sense. So, say if somebody's already got refugee status in another country and then claims asylum in the UK, for example, they might have a, they might have refugee status in Germany, then they travel to the UK, claims asylum. That claim would probably be deemed inadmissible, and that kind of makes sense because that person has already got protection somewhere else as well, and in a in a probably what is quite clearly a safe country. Similarly, if somebody has claimed asylum in another European country, that claim might be deemed inadmissible. But the one that captures more people and where this is quite really quite broad within the immigration rules is basically where the Home Office thinks that somebody could have and should have claimed asylum in another safe country. So in most circumstances, that will be somebody who's travelled for an EU country, then claims asylum in the UK, and then whoever it is probably doing that asylum screening interview thinks, oh, actually, this person spent some time in Belgium or France, wherever it, it might be, I think that claim is potentially inadmissible. What that also means is that the scope of these rules are pretty broad. It applies to men, women, um, children and families. The only exception to the way the rules work at the moment is that it doesn't apply to an unaccompanied child. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that the claim has been deemed inadmissible because someone has travelled through a country like Belgium, it doesn't mean that uh, they can only be sent back to Belgium. They're deemed inadmissible in general and then lined up for admit to for removal now to Rwanda. Yeah, and that was one of those key, the key things that came in those immigration rules in, in 2020 and really is the key thing to understand, I think, about the Rwanda deal now. Yeah, and I remember we wrote about in some detail about those rules when they came in. Um, but just link that up then with the Borders Bill. What they then do is put these existing rules into Primary Legislation Act of Parliament. Yes, there's bits of the rules that then go into the Nationality and Borders Bill. Still a bill as we're speaking, likely to become an act in the next 24 hours or so. And it puts part of those into then primarily primary legislation. So mostly the bits that we've just been talking about, those situations where inadmissibility would be appropriate. The bit that is missing, though, from the rules that hasn't been transposed into the bill is that bit that's 345C around the Home Secretary then being able to remove somebody to a country where they haven't been, they have no connection with. It also potentially removes an existing long stop within the inadmissibility rules. The rules at the moment allow the Home Secretary to 
consider a claim substantively that has previously been deemed inadmissible if removal isn't going to be possible in a reasonable period of time. And within the guidance around the inadmissibility rules at the moment, the Home Office basically has around six months from the moment a decision is made to get a returns agreement in place to deem that um, claim inadmissible. It's a little bit unclear what the actual ramifications of that might be. But one of those could potentially be that it gives the Home Office a little bit longer than they currently have to get that returns agreement in place. Yeah, I suppose if they leave it in the the six month period in the rules and the guidance, it would still apply. But leaving it out of the act means that they could just remove that in future if they didn't want this this time cap. Yeah, I think it gives them a little bit more more leeway, and partic- particularly now in light of the Rwanda deal, none of us know how this is going to work with you know, potential challenges and actually in practice. So, does it give them a little bit longer? Maybe if there are those challenges, I would say probably potentially yes. Up until now, under the inadmissibility rules as they've operated over the past uh, year and a bit, only a handful of people have actually had their asylum claim deemed inadmissible. And that's led some observers to say, oh, well, this Rwanda thing isn't going to actually affect people in any great numbers. I'm interested what you guys think, because personally, I'm not sure that's the right way of looking at it, because you had this six-month cutoff point uh, in the rules, um, and there was no country where people could be sent. Everyone basically had their asylum claim delayed for six months, but because there was no agreement with a country like Rwanda, there could be no final inadmissibility decisions made, except in a couple of dozen cases where they had actually been granted refugee status in Germany or, or something like that. But now that we do have Rwanda as a place where people in principle can go, I think that opens the way. It seems to me that a lot more inadmissibility decisions can be made. Whether people will then be removed as a matter of practicality is, is different, but a lot more people could now be marked down for removal as inadmissible. I mean, I, I'd, I'd agree with you on that as well. And I think it comes back to understanding how that inadmissibility process currently work so somebody goes through that asylum screen interview that person thinks oh this case is potentially inadmissible because they could have claimed asylum elsewhere that claim isn't then deemed inadmissible at that point instead it gets referred into the home office and then if they think there's potentially evidence again at that point it still isn't deemed inadmissible instead that individual making that claim gets what's called a notice of intent that their claim is potentially inadmissible and that then triggers that sort of six month period and further further investigation about whether there's enough evidence to actually deem that claim inadmissible. Also, after that notice of intent, that's where the Home Office will then try to get the return agreement or removal agreement in place with a, another, another country. Only once they've got that return agreement, can they then actually deem that claim inadmissible? And does that person get notification that their claim is inadmissible to the UK system? And that would also detail information about where they're going to be removed to. But as you say... What the UK government hasn't had since these rules came into place was that return agreement. So when we look at the stats from last year, just over 8,500 notice of intent issued, but only 64 actual inadmissibility decisions. And then only 11 people had actually been removed by the end of last year. I think what the Rwanda deal does is that for the Home Office point of view, it closes that gap between number of notice of intent that they issued last year and then the number of inadmissibility decisions that they actually were then made. Okay, so that is the legal basis for the scheme. What about legal challenges then, Sonia? Are lawyers thinking about how to get this uh, scheme struck down in some way? 
yes, lawyers are thinking about how to get the scheme struck down. Um, There are some excellent lawyers already on the case, working closely with NGOs in the sector. Um, Obviously, so far, all we have uh, is the Memorandum of Understanding, which is not legally binding. Um, But it's unclear what further information or guidance the Home Office actually intends to publish and when. So, for example, the Home Secretary um, suggested that information as to who would be sent to Rwanda would not be published because somehow the smugglers would use that. I don't really follow the logic. So far, it seems that individualized decisions may be the way forward, but we still just don't know. So timings and challenges are all still a bit difficult to finalize at this point. But uh, the sector's working on evidence gathering and preparing for litigation. And I know a couple of um, letters are going out this week as, you know, sort of preliminary getting these challenges off the ground. Certainly, from what we can see so far and what we know of the asylum system in Rwanda, that does seem, it seems like those challenges will have, hopefully, good good prospects of success. Yeah, so, and there's irons already in the fire. Can I take you back to this business of we're not going to publish any criteria for who might be removed um, because you know, the, the smugglers might get their hands out, whatever. I mean, leaving aside the, the, the logic of that, is that tenable just to say we're not going to publish anything or release any criteria for who gets sent abroad? Because presumably once legal challenges begin, people will apply to the court to, to release the documents just as they did for the, the channel pushbacks uh, policy. Yes, exactly. And that's what I expect to happen next. Okay, so that, that line may not hold. Um, you mentioned individual cases, people, individual people saying whatever about the overall policy, you can't send me to Rwanda because of X, Y, Z reason. What sort of arguments would that, would that be based on sort of vulnerability, human trafficking, that sort of thing? Yes. So they, they've said apparently there will be some sort of screening, um, although we don't know the criteria. Um, I think they've expressly said that they will be sending survivors of trafficking to Rwanda. They also appear to be getting Rwanda to cobble together some sort of process for asylum claims based on sexual orientation and gender identity, which is not currently possible in Rwanda. Um, So it's really unclear who they will be screening out. But yes, as far as individualised challenges are concerned, I think if you get a notice of intent and you fit the criteria for the Rwanda arrangement, which is that you've arrived after the 1st of January and you've you've stopped off somewhere along the way, then if you get a notice of intent, that is where representations should be made as to why your asylum claim should not be deemed inadmissible, why you should not be sent to Rwanda. And then obviously you JR that decision as and when it comes. There's no published criteria on who might be sent but the government there was reporting that it would only be single men do we know anything more about um who will or will not be sent to rwanda so far i think you're right cj in that a lot of the media reporting certainly on the day of the announcement i think ministers were doing their media rounds on the that thursday morning as well saying you know yeah there's only those single men those economic migrants coming across from france but the Home Office, again, quote-unquote fact sheet, says that every person who comes to the UK illegally or by dangerous or unnecessary methods will be considered for relocation to Rwanda. And again, we've been talking about the inadmissibility criteria. And as I mentioned, that applies to everybody other than unaccompanied children, so men, women, families, um, which is rather in contrast to what was being briefed out 
around single adult men only. What about compliance with international law? Because the Home Office says that it's legal on the uh, in terms of the Refugee Convention as well. You can't go into a UK court to you know argue directly that uh, it should be struck down on that basis. But do we think it is a breach of the Refugee Convention? Well, I mean, for LGBTQI plus people, I would say that does seem likely um, because we know that they, people from Rwanda who are LGBTQI plus are granted refugee status on that basis. Uh, numbers in the UK are low and so are not reported in full by the Home Office. But I have determinations from other countries and I'm working to get more. UNHCR published a submission in July 2020, which said that uh, LGBTI asylum seekers continue to face challenges upon submission of their asylum request to the immigration service in Rwanda, uh, and that their their applications are verbally rejected. So that is the current position, as far as I'm aware, that it's not possible to claim based on sexual orientation or gender identity. But, you know, LGBTQI plus people from Rwanda are granted refugee status. So sending them to Rwanda is likely to be a breach of the Refugee Convention. From a British Red Cross point of view, I mean, as Sonia's been talking about, I'm sure there'll be plenty of legal challenges and lots of debate around this. Our concern, and looking at the work that we do with other Red Cross, Red Crescent national societies around the world, is actually the message that this starts to send as well. And for us, that starting point of the Refugee Convention is supposed to be that international solidarity about different countries taking responsibility for determining those asylum claims and providing protection to people and this is really the UK outsourcing those that responsibility and we saw last year Denmark similarly has an MOU with Rwanda that it's never been able to then operationalize I'm sure there are Danish government is now looking at the the example of the UK and saying okay how can we maybe piggyback on this a little bit now as well and it definitely sets a, a very worrying precedent for what other European countries will probably look to do. Yeah, the the thin end of the wedge. Does the Home Office have the capacity to physically remove, I mean, again, in the media, there was talk of tens of thousands of people. uh, But last year, it managed uh, to remove just 3,400 people across the board to any country in terms of enforced removals. By contrast, 28,000 people arrived by small boats. And, you know, I, I don't work directly with uh, asylum seekers or people being removed. But even just reading reports from the independent monitoring committees, it's really tough stuff. Like you read about self-harm and people being carried onto planes, resisting. It's it's really a brutal process for, for everyone involved. And it's really hard to do, even when you're sending people back to their home country, let alone dumping them on a whole different continent. Like, is the Home Office going to be able to do this at any scale in terms of those logistics well i mean i think we're going to see probably some pretty horrible stories emerging about what this is going to mean mean for people as well but i think just from a a purely practical point of view big unanswered questions still around how the deal will actually work so both the the capacity of the uk government and the home office to be able to remove people to go through those those processes sonia was talking about the legal challenges that will come both to the deal but also on those individual cases and also just from the point of view of the Rwandan government as well their capacity to be able to accommodate people because everybody's supposed to get accommodation on arrival process those asylum claims as well so although the scheme is technically uncapped 
there's a whole load of challenges which continue to be sort of seen about how they will actually be met. Absolutely. I mean, the Home Office might say, okay, we don't have to remove everyone. We don't have to remove tens of thousands of people. We just need to remove a few and that will provide a deterrent uh, to to the rest. And they point to the example of Australia. They export refugees or have exported refugees to uh, Nauru and Papua New Guinea. And the Home Office says this was quote-unquote, successful in reducing illegal maritime arrivals. Is that right, Sonia? I mean, for starters, there's no logical reason to think that it would provide a deterrent because, you know, if people can see that some some refugees are still able to stay in the UK, then you're always going to take that chance and think, you know, maybe I will be one of the lucky ones. If you are fleeing for your life... It, it, you know, it just logically to me, I don't see how it would act as a deterrent. Uh, in relation to Australia, I would refer anyone who asks about the effectiveness of Australia's policies on sending people to Nauru and uh, Papua New Guinea to the Caldor Centre's excellent briefings and reports. In relation to the effectiveness of off- offshore processing, they say that it operated for a year before the Australian government also started its dangerous policy of boat bush packs. And they say that Australian government data from that year without the pushbacks shows definitively that offshore processing did not deter people from seeking asylum in Australia by boat. So first of all, there's the point that it just doesn't make any sense that it would act as a deterrent. And then secondly, Australia has the evidence that it doesn't. Yeah, the Calder Centre, I think, is at the University of New South Wales, uh, academic researchers there. Uh, As you say, it's a very good report. I I also asked Henry Sherrill, who's a Australian immigration policy expert about this and and he said similar it wasn't clear that offshoring was the thing that was successful from the Australian government's point of view in stopping people traveling and it was about getting the agreement of the government of places like Indonesia to um, push boats back in their direction he told me personally I don't see how the Rwanda deal has much hope in terms of genuine deterrence this has been really interesting but we should bring it to a close. I'm just interested overall, what are your views at this stage, given the limited limited information we have about the policy? Is it going to happen? If so, is it going to work in terms of the government's stated deterrence objective? I mean, I think this has obviously been something which the Home Secretary and the Home Office have been working on for a number of months. There's a lot of political uh, importance, I think, being put behind this this deal being seen to work so I think even with all the challenges that we've talked about we will see some people being removed to Rwanda and I think even if we only see a handful of people that is a very a bad thing and something that we we don't want to see happen at all and also I mean frankly I think as probably we all agree we don't think it's going to meet the Home Office's stated aims anyway we've talked about some of the evidence from Australia but also the UK is a very different context from Australia just geographically where it sits in relation to the European mainland as well and I think probably more likely than anything you might see Sonia's touched upon people not wanting to claim asylum when they've got here people then going underground or people just finding other ways where they're not going to get picked up um, and they never go into the asylum process so we would definitely like to think the Hobos at some point will have to rethink this and come up with some better solutions. Yeah, I don't know. I think I might be a little more optimistic than John as to whether anyone will actually be sent to Rwanda. Um, but I guess we need to wait and see. The other 
instructive example to look at is the Israel-Rwanda agreement, and that was ultimately held to be unlawful by their Supreme Court. So yeah, we just need to wait and see. I mean, there's a lot more information we need from the UK. Um, We're also trying to get a lot more information about how the asylum process in Rwanda is actually running and working. I've heard that there's apparently one person who is dealing with refugee status determinations. And yeah, we need a lot more information. And I suppose that will sort of dictate what happens next. But at this point, I am feeling quite optimistic about the legal challenges. Absolutely. We always like to try to end on an optimistic note, uh, although it's not always possible when discussing the UK asylum system. Uh, Thanks very much both. We'll leave it there. John Featonby, Policy and Advocacy Manager at the British Red Cross, and Sonia Lennigan, Legal and Policy Director at Rainbow Migration. This has been a podcast from Free Movement. We publish updates, commentary, training and advice on UK immigration and asylum law, www.freemovement.org.uk. You can sign up as a member and it's wonderful. I will be back with the next episode of this podcast, uh, our monthly roundup with Colin Yeo on the Friday the 13th of May. Until then, thanks for listening.